Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Roxanne Gay. Thank you. Hello, Los Angeles. Hi. Is Channing Tatum here? <laughs> oh, t- <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> uh, it's great to be here. There's a lot of people here. Um, I was betting someone that there would be five people, and so clearly there are at least six. <laughs> and So I'm really into that. Uh, but I thought before I read my novel, which is really dark and depressing, um, and I will make you lose all hope. So before I do that, I thought I would read about um, famous men because I have a really active imagination and I live in the middle of nowhere. So I think about these men quite a lot. Elliot Stabler. Oh. Right, I mean. <laughs> like when he's so angry, I'm just like, Elliot, bring it. I'm here for this. And then um, <laughs> I'm really here for it. Morgan Freeman. I mean, because I think he has soft hands. And he also has, I want to just trace his freckles. <laughs> But today I thought I would read about Mr. Rogers, because I know, but it's, just wait. <laughs> Mr. Rogers is amazing. Do not sleep on Fred Rogers. Mr. Rogers was able to wear cardigans with dignity because he is smooth and debonair in a suburban sense. He teaches important things. I am certain he smells like brill cream and Old Spice and pot roast. I would make Mr. Rogers a pot roast. I would do so while wearing a smart white apron with a lace hem I tied around my waist and a neat bow. I would even serve Mr. Rogers his delicious pot roast and fresh vegetables and mashed potatoes. I would bake him pie for dessert, apple with a scoop of French vanilla ice cream or a thick slice of cheddar. When he came home from work, I would make him a highball or a martini. I don't really know what a highball is, but it's a drink, probably fancy. In my head, it involves whiskey. A highball sounds important, like if you are an important and serious person, you drink highballs. Mr. Rogers would be a good man to come home to, never raising his voice, always talking calmly, treating me nice. When he sat on the bench just inside the front door to change his shoes... I would hold his impeccably shined floor shimes against my chest, carefully undoing the laces. I'd massage his feet between my fingers before sliding his favorite soft slippers onto his feet. I would rest my cheek against his knee. He would hold his hand to my head. Lost my place. (laughs) We would sit like that, quietly, together. In our bedroom, there would be two twin beds, very close together. Mr. Rogers would want to hold my hand as we fell asleep. Most nights, Mr. Rogers would pat the empty space next to him and say, come join me. He'd say, won't you be, oh, won't you be my neighbor? And then we would laugh at how so very clever he is. 
Mr. Rogers would never want a queen-size bed. He'd rather share a smaller bed so we can always feel close and special. He would say, there should be no such thing as space where love is concerned. My mother would disagree. I would lie in that twin bed with Mr. Rogers. He'd wear one of those white t-shirts and a pair of neatly hemmed pajama pants, probably with stripes, because that's what a gentleman does. And in bed at night, his t-shirt would smell like his day. A little sweat, soap, fresh cut grass because he always mows the lawn, whiskey and cigarettes because Mr. Rogers is a good man, but he is still a man. <laughs> I would pat my hand against his cotton-covered chest and feel his warmth and the strength of the muscle there. Mr. Rogers would take very good care of himself. He really would. <laughs> we would make love with the lights off, beneath the covers, missionary style, but it would be exactly what I want. Mr. Rogers would be a surprisingly passionate man. He would sweat through the Brill cream and his hair would start to hang long against my face. He would whisper things and I would whisper secret things and every night as we fell asleep, Mr. Rogers would hum, it's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. And I would think of how nicely his cardigan sweaters looked in the closet next to my dresses. I would say, yes, Mr. Rogers, it is. I would always, always call him Mr. Rogers. Ooh. <laughs> Get excited. So I write things. And so I wrote a novel. My parents are from Haiti. And when I was a child, we would go to Port-au-Prince in the summers, and I thought it was paradise because we would have adventures, and we would go to the beach and go to the mountains, and my dad climbed palm trees, and he's like a stuffy suit in a good way. And I would just be like, wow, dad can climb? And the older I got, the more I began to realize that there's another side to paradise and that there's a price to the other side of paradise. And so I wrote a novel about a woman named Mireille who's kidnapped in Port-au-Prince and held for 13 days because her father is reluctant to pay the ransom. He worries that if you pay one kidnapper, eventually you're going to have to pay them all. And so this novel looks at what her life was like before, during, and after her kidnapping, and how she comes to terms both with her father's betrayal and this new understanding of Haiti that she, learned, that she gets from being kidnapped. So I thought I'd read a few chapters and then maybe take some questions. Yeah. I mean, I'm into it. I just said, what's his name? Oh, hello. <laughs> I mean, uh, it's not every day that you got a Bubba hanging out. We have been here before, and he has never started talking like that. I bring all the boys to the yard. I, it is what it is. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. I'm totally fine with Bubba. I'm sorry. Oh, I don't care. It's great. I think I, I was at a reading in Miami and I brought my niece, who's two. <laughs> As you imagine, that went really well. So Bub is actually really well behaved. <laughs> All right, so this is the first chapter. Yeah, Bubba, what's up? Once upon a time, in a far-off land, I was kidnapped by a gang of fearless yet terrified young men with so much impossible hope beating inside their bodies, it burned their very skin and strengthened their will right through their bones. They held me captive for 13 days. They wanted to break me. It was not personal, I was not broken. This is what I tell myself. It was hot, nearly 100 degrees, the air so thick it felt like warm rain. I dressed my son, Christophe, in a pair of miniature red board shorts and a light blue t-shirt with a sailboat across the front. 
I covered his smooth brown arms and his beaming face with sunscreen. I kissed his nose and brushed his thick blonde curls away from his face as he pressed his palm against my cheek and shouted, Mama, Mama, Mama. My husband Michael, the baby, and I said goodbye to my parents and told them that we would be back in time for dinner. Michael and I were taking Christoph to the ocean for the first time. We were going to hold him in the warm salt water as he wiggled his toes and kicked his chubby legs. We were going to throw him toward the sun and catch him safely in our arms. My mother smiled from the balcony where she watered her plants, wearing a crisp linen outfit and heels. She blew a kiss to her grandson. She reminded us to be safe. We put our son in his seat. We handed him his favorite stuffed animal, a little bulldog named Baba. He clenched his beloved toy tightly in his little fist, still smiling. He has his father's temperament. He is usually happy, and that is important to me. Before getting into the car, Michael double-checked that Kristoff was strapped securely in his car seat. He put our bags in the trunk. Michael held my door open, and when he closed it, he pressed his face against the window and blew air until his cheeks filled. I laughed and pressed my hand against his face through the glass. I love you, I mouthed. I don't say those words often, but he knows. Michael ran around to his side of the car. After he slid behind the steering wheel and adjusted the mirror, he leaned into me and we kissed. He rested an arm on the armrest between us and I idly brushed the wisps of hair. I smiled and rested my head on his shoulder. We drove down the long, steep hill of my parents' driveway and waited quietly for the heavy steel gates, the gates keeping us safe, to open. In the back seat, Christoph cooed softly, still smiling. As the gates closed behind us, three black land cruisers surrounded our car. The air filled with a high-pitched squealing and the smell of burning rubber. Michael's tanned knuckles turned white as he gripped the steering wheel and looked frantically for a way out. His body shook. The door of all three trucks opened at the same time and men we did not know spilled out all limbs and gunmetal. There was silence, the air thin, still hot. My breath caught painfully in my ribcage. There was shouting. Two men stood behind our car, machine guns raised. Michael pressed his foot against the gas pedal to move forward, but a tall man with a red bandana across his face, a man holding a machine gun, pounded his fist against the hood. He left a small dent in the shape of his closed hand. He glared at us and then raised his gun, pointed it directly at Michael's chest. I threw my arm across Michael's body. It was a silly, impotent gesture. Michael's eyes were bright, and arcs of tears trembled along his lower eyelids. He grabbed my hand between both of his, held me so fiercely it felt like all those slender bones would be crushed. Two men slammed the butts of their rifles against the car windows. Their bodies glowed with anger. The glass cracked, fractures spreading. Michael and I pulled apart, waited tensely, and then the windshield broke, the sound loud and echoing. We covered our faces as shards of glass shattered around us, refracting sharp prisms of light. Michael and I reached for Kristoff at the same time. The baby was still smiling, but his lips quivered, his eyes wide. My hands could not quite reach him. My child was so close, my fingers thrummed. If I touched my child, we would all be fine. This terrible thing would not happen. A man reached into the window and unlocked my door. He started to pull me out of the car, roughly growling as the seatbelt held me inside. After he slapped my face, he ordered me to unlock my seatbelt. My hands shook as I depressed the button. I was lifted up and out of the car and thrown onto the street, the skin covering my face stung. My body deflated. My body was just skin stretched too tightly over bone, nothing more, no air. The man sneered at me and called me diaspora with the resentment those Haitians who cannot leave hold for those of us who can. 
His skin was slick. I couldn't hold on to him. I tried to scratch, but my fingers only collected a thick layer of sweat. I tried to grab onto the car door. He slammed his gun against my fingers. I yelled, my baby, do not hurt my baby. One of the men grabbed me by my hair and threw me to the ground, kicked me in the stomach. I gasped as I wrapped my arms around myself. A small crowd gathered. I begged them to help. They did not. They stood and watched. I saw their faces as I screamed and fought with all the muscle in my heart. There was indifference in their eyes. There was relief that the wolves had not yet come for them. And so after that, it doesn't really get better. <laughs> it just doesn't. Um, and so she's taken to Bel Air, which is a slum of Port-au-Prince, and she's held there. And in the initial days, she's just sitting in a hot room, and so she starts to reflect on all of the stories that she's heard about other people in her social circle that have been kidnapped. It was not personal. That is what I told myself as I waited for something to happen, for someone to come find me, save me, set me free. Kidnapping was a business transaction, one requiring intense negotiation and eventually compromise, but I would be safe. I would be returned to those I love relatively unharmed. There was ample precedent for hope. One of the accountants who worked for my father, Gilbert, was kidnapped the previous year. His kidnappers originally asked for $125,000, but everyone knew that was simply a starting number, an initial conversation. Eventually, with professional assistance and proof of life, his family paid $53,000. My parents' friend, Corinne LeBlanche, was kidnapped not long before I was taken. She and her husband and five children lived in Haiti year-round. She always swore to anyone who would listen that were she ever kidnapped. Her husband, Simon, best meet her at the airport with her passport and children once she was returned because she would never spend another night in the country. Simon was a fat, happy businessman who owned a chain of restaurants and gas stations that did quite well. He laughed when Corinne made such declarations. He did not yet understand how these things went differently for women. She and the children now live in Miami. She called me when Michael and I returned to the States. Even though we said very little, we spoke for a long time. Two years ago, the matriarch of the Gilles family was kidnapped. She was 81. The kidnappers knew the family had more money than God. They failed to realize that she was frail and diabetic. She died soon after she was abducted. Everyone who knew her was thankful that her suffering was brief until the kidnappers, having learned the lesson that the elderly are bad for business, kidnapped her grandson, who at 37 promised to be a far more lucrative investment. When my cousin Gabby was kidnapped, her family paid and she was released in less than two days. We marveled for weeks at what a mercy that was. She had always been a frail girl, prone to fits of crying and long depressive spells where she took to her bed and kept her room shrouded in darkness. After the kidnapping though, Gabby never cried and she seemed happier somehow. It was a miracle, her mother said. The rest of us did not know what to think. My negotiations would be somewhat more complex and far more costly. A good family name and a prominent father, they come at a high price, even if in the early days of my kidnapping, we had no idea just how high the ransom would be. My father works in construction, so his office in Port-au-Prince is not well appointed. It's mostly just a space with a door. The floor is covered in cement dust and bits of gravel. Shelves are crammed with three-ring binders, blueprints, engineering textbooks from college. On the coat rack, there are three hard hats. The one from his first job in the US, the one his company gave him when he retired, and the one he bought when he started his own company. 
When we were young, my brother and sister and I loved to wear our father's hard hats. They were always too big, but it was fun to pretend that we were just like our father. We too could build grand things. In my father's office, there is also a desk, wide, made of cherry, polished until it gleams, an imposing contrast to the rest of the office. Each time he hires a new employer, my father invites them to a brief meeting where he sits behind his shiny desk. He laces his fingers behind his head and stretches his legs and calmly tells the employee that he will never pay a ransom, not for himself, not for any member of his family. He smiles and says, welcome to Duval Engineering. He wants the people who work for him to know that the only money they will ever receive is money they earn through sweat and hard work. So later in the novel, she starts to remember her life before the kidnapping. And so in this chapter, she and her husband, Michael, are visiting Port-au-Prince together for the first time. Michael and I took our first trip to Port-au-Prince after dating for a year. Michael insisted on meeting my parents. I tried to prepare him. I explained how he would see things he might never see in the States, difficult and painful things. I explained that there is nowhere in the world as beautiful and as ugly, as hopeful and as hopeless. He did not quite understand what I meant, but he tried and I tried. I hoped that he would understand that he could not love me without loving where I am from. In the weeks before our trip, Michael read travel books and surfed the internet and took notes. He'd point to a hat and say, le chapeau, and in the driveway, he'd pat the hood of the car and say, la voiture, and when we woke up in the morning, he'd say, je t'aime, the words always sounding square and strange, wrapped in his thick Midwestern accent. It was very charming. We had a lot of sex. <laughs> he filled an entire suitcase with bottled water. As I watched him packing, I said, what the hell are you doing? I don't want to get sick, he said. We're not going off the grid, Michael. My parents have plenty of water. That's kind of all we drink. He shook his head and zipped his suitcase shut. Just in case, he said, patting his bag proudly like he was making a good decision. Miami International Airport often feels like Port-au-Prince. It is crowded and hot and forever under construction, though nothing seems to change. Everyone is irritable and sweaty and talking too loudly, often trying to carry too much to some country where the people have too little. As we stood in line, Michael kept tugging my sleeve, whispering into my ear loudly, look at that suitcase, look at that suitcase. How are these people going to get on the plane? I laughed. I said, the rules are different for these flights, and Haitians ignore the rules anyway. <laughs> He rubbed his chin thoughtfully and started taking pictures with his phone. We sat in first class and Michael grinned like a little boy. It was his first time. I squeezed his hand. His smile always brings out the best in me. Michael had a happy childhood and that helped him become a happy man. My parents love that about him. They love his joy, his red cheeks and his easy smile, the way he is not intimidated by anything. They call him Mr. America. <laughs> I tried to ignore my nervousness. I talked so fast, trying to remind Michael of all the things he should and should not do. He said, relax, babe, I have met the parents before. I leaned back and I said, you have not met the Haitian parents. As we descended into Port-au-Prince, we switched seats and Michael stared down at the beautiful blue water and then the capital sprawling in from the edge of the island. Are you ready for this? He nodded eagerly. I hoped for the best. We walked across the tarmac, white heat billowing around us in waves. By the time we reached the terminal, where the air conditioning was not working, Michael was dripping in sweat, his hair clinging to his red face. 
We waited in customs for what seemed like hours, the line shuffling forward with people cutting at random or clustering when they saw someone they recognized or when they simply wanted to improve their chances of ever getting out of the airport. Michael wiped his forehead and shook his head. This is insanity. I held his arm and I said, baby, this is the easy part. <laughs> At baggage claim, my parents' chauffeur, Nelson, waved to us eagerly. When he tried to take Michael's suitcase, Michael said, I've got this. And Nelson frowned. Let him take your bag, I said. Michael let go of the handle and shifted uncomfortably. A fresh bead of sweat trickled down his neck. We followed Nelson through a throng of people gathered near the airport entrance, cab drivers trying to grab tourist fares, bags to hijack fares, vendors selling Haitian flags and straw hats, armed police trying to keep the chaos to a dull roar. Dozens of young men stood behind a fence shouting to the people they recognized and strangers alike. The drive to my parents' house was long and bumpy, the sun-scorched concrete of Port-au-Prince stretching around us. Nelson spent most of his time with one hand on the horn and one arm hanging out the window so he could gesture angrily when someone cut him off or otherwise got in his way. I stared at Michael as we drove, saw his wide open eyes, how he seemed to be holding his breath. Everything was as dirty and broken as I remembered until we entered my parents' neighborhood and the city quieted. The streets were cleaner, more orderly, the cars nicer, the concrete walls towering even higher than the homes themselves. Michael relaxed visibly, loosened his grip on my hand. At the gate at the foot of their driveway, Nelson honked the horn and slowly the steel gates opened. We drove up the long driveway and as the house came into view, Michael said, holy shit, this is a castle. And I said, welcome to Port-au-Prince. My mother has ideas about men and women. When a woman lives with a man before they are married, my mother believes that she's engaged in a concubinage. This sort of arrangement upsets her greatly. Michael and I pretended we were not living together until we married. During our first visit to the motherland, we had to sleep in separate rooms. When he realized this, Michael pulled me aside. Seriously? I squeezed his arm and kissed his chin. You'll be fine, I said. He pouted. I can't sleep without you. You've ruined me. I suppose you won't be getting much sleep then. My mother found us in the hallway, Michael's arms around me, me on the very tips of my toes, my lips pressed against the hollow of his neck. She cleared her throat and we pulled apart, an uncomfortable heat spreading through my face and scalp. My parents do not know me as someone who is open with her affection. They do not know who I am when I am with Michael. Thank you. Thanks. So I'm happy to take some questions, if you have them. I can talk about anything, too. You don't even know. <laughs> right? I mean, I'm just saying. Can you talk about how this book came about? <laughs> One word at a time. <laughs> now, I wrote a short story called Things I Know About Fairy Tales. And um, the characters just wouldn't leave me alone, and I thought, there's something more here. And so I told myself, I can't write a novel, so I'll just write like 100 short stories and smush them together. <laughs> so that's how I started it. But once I got into it, I realized that there was plenty of space to tell the story, and there was plenty of story that demanded to be told. Um, and so just one page at a time, I wrote the novel in a summer. One summer? Mm-hmm. I, I teach, so I had no choice. An essay collection, Bad Feminist. Can you talk about that? Yes. <laughs> Bad Feminist comes out on August 5th. Um, and it's got a really cute cover with pink on it. Yes. Um, 
I started tongue-in-cheek calling myself a bad feminist several years ago because I'm really bad at feminism, but I still believe in feminism, and I see so many intelligent women who like to distance themselves from feminism, like, oh, I'm not a feminist because, you know, I don't, I, I love men. Like, girl, nobody cares who you love. Um, and it's just not about that. And so I didn't want to disown feminism, but I also wanted to acknowledge that I'm not good at it and like, I don't care if you take your husband's name and I don't care if you stay home and, and work instead of working outside the home and I think men should take out the trash and I think car is man business and I don't want anything to do with it. Um, so I'm a bad feminist, but I still believe in the equality of women and I think that we have to look at the intersections between gender, race, sexuality, and class and not leave anyone behind as we strive for equality. It's a pretty good book. <laughs> I mean, I talk about Channing in there, <laughs> among other things. And so it's just a collection of essays. I, I looked at all my work and I pulled it together and I'm excited. Okay. Yes. Do you think gender is synthetic? No, male. Yes, no, I do not. I think if gender were synthetic, we wouldn't have people like transgender people who are fighting for the right to have their gender acknowledged. It's very, I mean, I think for some people it's synthetic, but like I'm a woman, I mean, obviously, but um, I, 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 I'm very happy to be a woman. Like, I feel very much like a woman, but I also know many people who don't feel like they want to pick one gender, nor do they have to, thank God. Um, but no, I don't think it's synthetic. How could you know how, how the other gender feels? Oh. How, how can I, uh, I'll never cross that divide. Well, I mean, I, I wouldn't say that. I mean, we can write science fiction where we imagine that people live on Mars. So, I mean, it's not that different. We, we have bodies and we move through the world. Well, I'm well, just wondering how I'm going to explain another gender. I, I, I mean, I. Uh, that's Read a, a book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. We have a question in the back, yeah. Um, going back to Katie and your um, stories about Katie, I was wondering how your relationship with Katie has changed throughout the years or how that influenced uh, writing this book. Yeah, um, I was really nervous to publish the book, not write it per se, but I'm very protective of Haiti because people read this and they're like, oh, Haiti's terrible. I'm sorry, I was on a tour of LA today and I saw Skid Row. So there is nobody in the United States that could open their mouths about poverty um, because I also went to Beverly Hills where the shrubs were higher than the houses. Um, I think this kind of economic inequality exists everywhere, but we choose to think of it as a third world problem. And I didn't want that to happen. So I was really worried about how Haitians would perceive the book and how Americans would misconstrue the island, which is a wonderful place. Um, I went there during the summers as a child and it was really idyllic. And the older I got, the more I realized it wasn't. And there, there were things I could start to see because I had more sophistication. Um, and, and so I think this novel really sort of charts how I came to terms with what I saw. And my family's still there. My dad and my brother work there. What do they think of your writing for <laughs> Oh, they think it's great. I mean, I didn't tell them about it. And then I, my youngest brother, Michael, is an asshole. And um, <laughs> told the entire family about it the day the book was released. He can't shut up about it now. And so now everyone knows and has bought the book. And I suppose that's good. Um, but they're really into it. My dad has become a stalker. Um, it's really uncomfortable because I write some <laughs> interesting things. And like he's passing my essays around the, with my brothers now. And uh, I'm just like, Dad, 
you, do you want to know this about me? <laughs> I'm a freak. <laughs> and I like it rough. Let's do it. <laughs> Just stop reading my stuff. Um, so it's been interesting, but he's really supportive um, because he, he understands that it's a novel and that it's fiction and it's not some sort of nonfiction book about Haiti. So it's, he's, they've been really great about it. And my brother is super into it. He's again, asshole. But um, he loves it. And he, because he's m close to me in age, or, I mean, not really, he's eight years younger. Um, he, too, has experienced Haiti from a place of privilege. And so he really recognized a lot of like what I wrote into the novel that sort of like, oh my god, can you believe that just happened? Um, because he sees it every day. Thanks. Oh, <laughs> collected tweets. <laughs> the Norton Anthology of Roxane Gay tweets. I'm, I'm, honestly, I think we're like three years away from that. Um, God, I hope. I, yeah, that's going to be in um, Bomb Magazine right now. Um, yeah, it was. It's going to be in Bomb, uh, the print issue that comes out very soon, like around May 7th. Oh, no, we're in June. Yeah, so I think it might already be out. I haven't been... My, my mail is a, is a problem right now, so I haven't seen it. But uh, yeah. Um, I love Twitter, so I get down there. <laughs> yeah. Um, I know that you're a part of the small press group. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about the experience of being a part of the small press group and now working with the press? Yes, money. <laughs> um, money is the difference. And money means a lot in the book world. Um, my first book, IET, um, I published with a micro press, and I received no advance. I produced my own ebook, and I've made two hundred and five dollars in four years. I think there's something sketchy going on there, but whatever. What can you do? Um, that's, I mean, that's the small press world. But I'm still proud of the book, and the the editor Ryan Bradley is amazing, and the book is still in print, and so I really love that. And my mom's photography is on the cover and so the small press world allows you to have that say in terms of working with bigger presses I have to say from what I understand my experience has been an anomaly because I've had a great experience with both HarperCollins and Grove um, and, and that's not bullshit because they didn't pay me enough to bullshit um, uh, trust those advances were a joke um, <laughs> I but they've been wonderful they take my input when I didn't like the first cover of the novel they came up with a new one my editor edits um, both editors actually edit. They bring me in on marketing, um, and they're just nice, and they send me presents. <laughs> and that's all, I'm cheap. I can be bought. And so it's been great. But I, yeah, I'm sorry. To f really, it's about money, though, because like advertising, and I'm on tour, which is weird and great. Um, but small presses cannot afford to do that, and a lot of really great small press writers just send themselves on tour. Um, but it's hard. It's so expensive. Like my publisher is paying for the tour, and I just my bank account's making me want to cry, even like with that support. Because like every day you have to like eat in restaurants and like pay for cabs and shit. Shit is not cheap, and so it's super expensive. And so money is the really big divider. Anyone else? Do you write nonfiction? Yeah, I have an essay collection coming out um, in August. So I write both fiction and nonfiction. Are you gonna ask them? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, not yet, but I also haven't looked. I've been too busy. Yeah, you know, I think the student loan system in this country is amazing. Um, I do. 
I, I think that there are a few places where you can get an education the way you can in the United States, even though you pay for it. I have a, huh, I thought I had $129,000 in loans, but turns out there's this thing called interest. And so <laughs> I have $143,000 in loans now. Um, it's, it's painful, it is, but man, I got a hell of an education. I don't regret it. But I do think that we need to find more sustainable ways. I, I think I don't regret it because I can afford my student loan payment. And because Obama, bless his heart, I wouldn't be able to without Obama and what he did with the student loans to make income-based repayment, which is the only way. Um, and actually, trivia, 70% of people that apply for income-based repayment have payments of zero dollars a month, so check it out. Um, so I do want to tackle that and really get into that and look at, I'm really interested in student loans and private universities and private lenders because I think that's where they really choke you and rob you and exploit you. Where, where do you teach? East, well, um, until this year I teach at Eastern Illinois University, but in the fall I'm starting at Purdue. Yeah. <laughs> God, I hope so. I think that Channing would be a great Michael. And just in case, I mean, LA is a small town, if anybody knows him. Yeah, um, movie rights have not been sold yet. Um, I'm really hoping that happens, um, but I also am realistic that it might not, probably won't. But I, I think it would be an interesting movie with the right producer and director. I think it would have to be someone who respects the story and respects the country the story is set in. But I hope so. I'm actually not cool, <laughs> but I, I don't think of myself as cool. Um, I was a loser in high school, and I say that if, like, without judgment. Like, I don't judge my 16-year-old self. I just hug her like, girl, you were a mess. Um, <laughs> but I, I had a lot of really good reasons to be a mess. And so I was really unpopular, and I was very awkward and very shy. Like, I could not speak to other humans. I spent an entire year writing backwards. And fortunately, I went to a private high school, so <laughs> they didn't care. They, like, read my little homework backwards. Um, <laughs> I was just really weird. Um, and apparently, I was mean because I was looking in my yearbook a couple months ago and someone said, I really like you, but you were so mean. And I, I don't remember being mean. I remember being oppressed. <laughs> and so um, apparently I also had a bit of a cutting wit, <laughs> but I was really nerdy. Um, and I just read a lot and wrote a lot. So really nothing has changed. And our last question. Yeah. I'm curious what your students' reactions have been to your writing. Do they talk to you about it? They do. I don't talk to them about it, but other faculty in my department tend to gossip about it quite a bit. And so they picked up and they started to Google me, which sucks. And so they're really into it now. But what really pushed me over the threshold with my students was having an essay in Glamour. Like, books, whatever. <laughs> oh my god, Dr. Gay, you have an essay in Glamour. I was like, yeah, I do. But um, actually, three former students came to see me in Chicago um, in mid-May, and it was wonderful. And so they've been extremely, extremely supportive, and it's been 
so gratifying because you you know you're just their teacher and then they see you as this human being who actually is doing what you're teaching so that's also really nice to be like yeah suckers I know what I'm talking about when I tell you to read that shit and <laughs> so it's awesome and now like the word has spread and so I, like my past two years I haven't had any issues like they just do what I tell them to do it's like if you want to be like Mike do this homework <laughs> so yeah thank you thank you You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.